0: and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com slash TFS. You'll receive up to a year's supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your subscription. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash TFS. As in Tim Ferriss' show. athleticgreens.com slash TFS. <laughs> Hello, ladies and gentlemen, this is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. I am so giddy, so excited about this episode, (laughs) and it is one in a series of close to 300 episodes now where each time around I try to deconstruct a world-class performer and share with you the stories, the habits, routines, beliefs, negotiating skills in this particular case that you can test and apply in your own lives. These are the skill sets that help each of these interviewees become the best at what they do. And our guest today is none other than the one and only Sir Richard Branson, at Richard Branson, in pretty much everything. He's uh, Richard Branson on Twitter, Richard Branson on Facebook. R Branson on LinkedIn and if you don't know who he is Richard Branson is the founder and chairman of the Virgin Group he is a world-famous entrepreneur adventurer, activist and certainly business icon he's launched a dozen billion-dollar businesses and hundreds of other companies the origins are crazy the later stories are even crazier and his new autobiography finding my virginity and I have a, I have a long history with Richard's books, which we get into in this episode, but his new autobiography, Finding My Virginity, shares the candid details of a lifetime of triumphs and failures, both of which have been very spectacular and provides an intimate look at his quest to push boundaries, break rules, and seek new frontiers. This episode was recorded as he was bouncing around the globe and primarily in Marrakesh, or Marrakech, depending on how you want to pronounce it, Morocco. So the music you hear in the background (laughs) is due to that. We worked very hard to get this scheduled. I loved this conversation. I've heard a lot of conversations with Richard before, including in person. I think this one really delivers the goods. We covered a lot and got into a lot of details, talked about many things I'd never heard him talk about before, including his thoughts on clean meat if you don't know what that means we'll get into it blockchain cryptocurrency how he's coped with dyslexia and how his parents helped make him resilient the behind the scenes stories of deal making pr stunts big wins and uh, in some cases (laughs) big losses the habits and life decisions he's used to maintain high energy levels for decades now how he caps or limits downside risk, even though he's perceived as a risk taker, how and why he takes, say, regular one to two months, sometimes longer, breaks from alcohol, favorite books, lessons learned from Nelson Mandela, and many others, and much, much more. We cover a ton. I was really nervous about this episode for a host of reasons and could not be happier with how it turned out. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed it. And definitely find Finding My Virginity at all fine booksellers. You can check it out. Uh, I'm certainly going to be digging in myself. And without further ado, please enjoy my extremely wide-ranging conversation with Sir Richard Branson. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you very much.
1: Uh, Nice to talk to you.
0: I have been looking forward to this conversation for more than 20 years. <laughs> and
1: uh, All right, well that, that's that, that's that's a lot to live up to. <laughs> yeah.
0: It is a lot to live um, up to. But,
1: uh, anyway, congr- congratulations on all you've you've achieved as well, so.
0: Thank you. No, uh, I appreciate it. We've uh, we've bumped into each other here and then uh different points around the world, but uh I've always wanted to sit down and very selfishly ask you a lot of questions ever since I bought your first autobiography, uh, Losing My Virginity, and have carried it with me since college through starting all of my businesses since. I thought we could just begin, I suppose, with current events. I've been following you around the planet to have this conversation, which I'm thrilled that we're able to have because you've gone through some pretty extenuating circumstances recently. Could you describe for us, I saw your Instagram post, for instance, about retreating into the wine cellar under your uh, home or the main building, I suppose it was, on Necker Island. Uh, Where are you right now? And could you describe what that experience was like?
1: It's a strange thing to say, but I've, I've, I've had the privilege of being through four hurricanes before this one and uh, about one every ten, 10 years in the Caribbean. And, um, you know, a Force 1, Force 2 hurricane, by and large, is magnificent. It's, you know, it's dramatic. The sea, uh, the sea throcks, the, the trees bend, the, you know, incredible lightning storms. And, and it's one of the sort of marvels of life. And, you know, yes, there's damage, um, you know, trees come down and, but generally speaking, you know, the, the damage is, you know, you can, you can overcome that damage. This hurricane was altogether different, and I mean, the uh, you you've got sort of force five, category force five hurricanes is the highest it goes. Uh, the hurricane that was coming to hit us was actually category seven. They, they didn't even have it in the books. Uh, you know, I was definitely going to stay on island because we had sixty members of our staff on island, uh, but I knew that it it would be foolish uh, to be you know up in the main house, you know, watching nature at its worst. We had to. Um, get into a, a very, very, very secure area. And so the moment it started hitting, we went down into a sort of concrete bunker uh, at the bottom of the house. And for five hours, I mean, it screamed. I mean, it was, um, you know, the whole concrete bunker shuddered. And, uh, you know, there the were you know, young girls as well as good guys. There were a couple of children in the bunker. Uh, there, was, there was a number of tears. Um, water was pouring through. Um, uh, but... I don't think any of us feared for our lives we knew that we were in a in a strong area um we we felt for uh 600 flamingos on the lake we 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 felt for the lemurs that that were still outside we, we felt for the people uh of the rest of the caribbean and the british virgin islands who lived in you know wooden shacks and uh and buildings that were, were nothing as strong as strong and then equally suddenly it stopped i mean it was suddenly there was a complete hush outside and we waited 15 minutes and we couldn't work out whether this was the end of the storm uh, or whether we were in the eye of the storm. And um, we, we stuck our head out of the door and I just looked at complete utter devastation. It was as if a hurricane had hit, hit the island. Um, and, you know, I, I don't often cry over possessions or, you know, you know being damaged. But uh, yeah, definitely, uh, um, I think all of us had tears in our eyes. Within five minutes, the other side of the storm hit, and we threw ourselves back in to the hurricane shelter and we huddled there for another four or five hours and um, When we finally came out um, we we surveyed the damage and you know on our own island, it was pretty devastating uh, to say the least within twenty four hours we'd we'd started going around the, the um uh, the rest of the British virgin islands, and I mean ninety percent of homes were Destroyed or nearly destroyed. Uh, incredible uh, that uh, more more life wasn't lost. I mean, and incredible the resilience of the uh, Caribbean people. I mean, stories you know that they told. You know, like you know, one, one person told me of you know the house disappearing above their head with their children, their grandchildren in it, uh, running to the neighbor's house. Um, that then disappeared. You know, running to a wall. Uh, the wall started collapsing. Uh, and they ended up with the whole family in a cesspit up to their uh, knees in, in shit. <laughs> and, and But they survived it. And, uh, you know, there's a 13 year old girl who within three days was uh, set up a, a, a makeshift school uh, um, out, outside teaching kids younger than her. And um, so anyway, very resilient people. And, and you know, the last couple of last month I just spent. Trying to work out ways of seeing whether the whole of the Caribbean, but the whole of the British Virgin Islands, um, can come back better and stronger and um, uh, and you know cleaner and you know see if we can get some positive things that come out of what's obviously been um, you know been um, a sad event.
0: So I'd love to dig into your, I suppose we could call it familiarity with. <laughs> Uh, what some people would look at as near-death experiences. Uh, this is from a New Yorker profile, but you hold records, and the writer observed you might also hold the record for the number of highly publicized near-death experiences. So you've, it, this was this was a some time ago. I mean, this is ten years ago, two thousand seven. But pulled from the sea five times by helicopters, once from a frozen lake during one of your attempts to circle the globe, crashed into the Algerian desert the Chinese air force threatened to shoot one of your balloons out of the sky at one point and it goes it goes on and on when you are in circumstances like that and you mentioned you had a lot of staff uh, down in the in the basement with you what did you say to those people if there were people there who were very very worried or perhaps panicking in some in some sense what did you say or what did you do in those circumstances
1: uh, I think humour humor is important. You know, putting on a brave, <laughs> putting on a brave face. You know, cracking, you know, cracking, cracking jokes. Um, plenty of hugs. I mean, I think uh, um, hugs are important. You know, but I think you know, like when we were all down, all down in the bunker. Uh, I mean, just to try to reassure them that you know that that, we, that, 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 that even 200 mile an hour winds, were not going to uh, bring a sort of concrete, you know, concrete bunker down. You know, with, with some, of my other, some of the other adventures where we were, you know, in, in, a, in a, um, a capsule up in the, um, you, know, fly, flying, you know, flying um, around the world. And when things went wrong, you know, there were just two of us generally. And, you, you know, both of you have got to try to keep the spirits of the other, the other person up. And um, if you're going to survive, the only way you're going to survive is uh, by keeping focused, by, you know, staying positive even if you are facing almost certain death i mean it's um but you know you're you're definitely you're definitely going to die unless you uh, stay focused and stay positive and uh, and fight to the bitter end um and you know there have been circumstances where you know on paper we had a well over 90% chance of uh, not coming home and um, and i think by staying focused by staying positive and and with you know a, a, a big dose of good fortune um we made it all the way back
0: so if we rewind the clock then i mean these are some of the exploits that you're known for but if we rewind the clock back to childhood i'd read that one of your headmasters had observed or he said to you actually i predict you will either end up in prison or a millionaire i don't know if that's true this is <laughs> you have to be careful what you read on the internet but if that is true what what do you think this headmaster saw in you or observed in you at such a young age that would that would uh, lead to such a statement?
1: Uh, it, it is true. Uh, it was his parting words to me as I left <laughs> left school, uh, <laughs> a, 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 aged um, uh, just just turning sixteen. And you know, I think that you know, I first of all, I, I, I am dyslexic. I was dyslexic, so conventional um, schooling definitely passed me by. Mm-hmm. And I was somebody that uh, you know, felt very strongly about some of the issues in the world. The biggest issue in the world at that time was a very unjust war, the Vietnamese war. I mean, most wars are very unjust, but, you know, but this was you know, yet another very, very unjust war. Uh, and I, like many young people, was was determined to try to campaign very hard um, to stop the war. And And I thought, Maybe the best way of doing it was to launch a magazine for young people that um, could be distributed not just among schools, but universities as well, which would be a, a campaigning magazine. And it would give young people the voice that they didn't have. You know, I, I, I started planning this magazine at school and working out the school phone box, trying to sell advertising and, you know, rigging up James Baldwin or Jean-Paul Sartre or or. You know Vanessa Redgrave, or any anybody I felt who, you know, Tariq Ali and uh, you know uh, Bernard Kohn Bendit from from Germany. Anybody I felt that, you know, could, that could contribute to a magazine, a campaigning magazine like this, and and getting them to contribute. And um, uh, and surprisingly, you know, managed to get enough advertising to cover the printing and the paper costs of the of the first issue. Um, so when the headmaster called me in and said, you know. You, you, you either must stay at school and stop doing this magazine idea of yours and concentrate on your schoolwork or uh, you're going to have to leave school to run your magazine. Uh, it was an easy decision for me and and, um, uh, and uh, I'm grateful to the headmaster for, for being uh, such a foolish headmaster. I mean obviously it would be much better <laughs> if, if, I, if, I, if I could have done both and I think it would have been good for the school but um, and I met him a few years later and, you know, and, um, uh, you know, he, he was he was very gracious and um, you know, congratulated us on our success and so on. But but I think, you know, I did end up in prison for a night um, a few years later, um, and I definitely uh, and that was before I'd become a millionaire. So so I think, um, you know, I remember the headmaster's words and I remember how unpleasant being in prison for a night is and um, and saying to myself, you know, I will never, ever, ever do anything that warrants me going to prison again. So it was, it was. It was I think everybody should spend a, spend a night in prison. Uh, so he, so he actually got it. He actually got it right on on both both counts.
0: <laughs> what did you do that led, or what happened that led to that night in prison?
1: What happened was um, that uh, whilst we had the magazine, we started in the magazine a little mail order company for. Uh, people who wanted to buy music and we called this mail order company Virgin Records nobody had sold music cheaply before so we we you know we discounted it by 10 to you know, 10 to 30% off and um and we sold music that we loved so you know Frank Zappa Captain Beefheart rock you know it was rock and roll music rather than uh, the, the sort of Andy Williams and the mixture of you know rubbish that you know other rubbish that was out there and um and so the public loved it. it. You know, it resonated with young people, um, and it, it. We had good taste, and we were aiming at, at kids with good taste. And um, and then one day, um, somebody ordered some um, records from Belgium uh, from us. A big, you know, a big group, a big large, you know, amount of records from Belgium. And so we've, you know, we got a lorry and we 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 drove across the um, drove down to Dover Dover and across to France. And when we got to France, they said, um, where, you take, where are you selling these records? And we said, in, in Belgium. And they said, well, you're not allowed to come through France and sell them in Belgium without a car which means that you're not going to leave them in France. Um, so you're going to have to go back to England. And as we were driving back to England, we realized that we had all these pieces of paper signed that said that we'd exported them. And now if we could sell them in England, we wouldn't have to pay the 35% tax. <laughs> um, uh, so foolishly we sold them in england and you know what we didn't realize was that there were other bigger retail chains doing something very similar in a, a much more professional way and there was a you know a group of customs and excise people who uh, were investigating this um, this idea and anyway so we got busted and uh, fortunately didn't get a criminal record because you know they they said you're gonna you can you can pay the fine off over three years. And as long as you pay the fine off, you won't get a criminal record. And, um, and actually, it spurred on the opening of, you know, we had to open 30 or 40 uh, record stores in order to pay off Richard's fine and keep myself <laughs> out of prison. And uh, so uh, very, very grateful to, to customs and excise for um, giving us that incentive.
0: What did your parents say to you at that time when you got in trouble and ended up in jail? And, and how old were you at, at the time, if you could place us?
1: I was 19 years old, so still a teenager, just, still just about allowed to be naughty. <laughs> I remember I was in, in Dover Magistrates Court and the judge said he wanted, you know, £10,000 bail. And, and I said, you look, there's no way I can afford £10,000 bail. And so he said, well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but you'll have to go to prison and, wait, and, wait, and, and await the trial then. And my mother stood up and said, well, what, what, what about if I pledge the family home? Um, would you with that? Would that be all right? And the judge was good enough to, you know, say that that would be fine if you pledged the family house, you, 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 that would be fine. So I gave my mother a very, very big hug. Uh, and many, many years later, I mean, you know, right, right, you know, fifty years later, nearly. You know, we're now working very hard in America to try to um, uh, help people who can't afford bail get bail. And um, you know, there's this awful situation in the states, for instance, where You know, where if you've got money or if you've got a house to pledge, you don't go to prison for six months waiting, awaiting your trial. But if you're if you're poor, often black, uh, you know, um, you end up languishing in prison for a few months while waiting for your trial, even although you can be completely innocent. So uh, so so obviously lots of personal experiences come back and and, and, uh, have influenced my life later on.
0: Well, I, I'd like to talk about influence. You mentioned your mother. And in preparing for this conversation, uh, I took a, a closer look at your mom. And I have to say, what I was going to do is not mention the last name and read this description. But your so your mom also wrote a book called "Mums of the Word, The High Flying Adventures of Eve Branson. I just have to Read a few lines here to give people some context a classically trained ballet dancer. She appeared in racy West End productions disguised herself as a boy to take glider lessons enlisted in the women's Royal Navy service and then embarked on a series of harrowing adventures as a star girl air hostess on the ill-fated British South American airways and it goes on and on this seems to potentially explain a lot Uh, and I was I was curious to know uh, specifically. When you were a kid struggling with dyslexia, and I'm not sure if it was even properly diagnosed at the time, but how did your, your mom uh, respond to that? What did she tell you when you were having trouble with school or having trouble reading? How, how did your parents or your mother help you navigate that? What what was the experience like?
1: Yeah, first of all, I'm lucky. I mean, I, uh, I have a very extraordinary mother and a, a, and a lovely father, and we're, we're a very, very close-knit family. And that's Fortunately, continued with myself, my wife, and, and children, and so on, ever since. So, uh, so that's given us a fantastic foundation as 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 a family. When I was young, the, the word dyslexia I don't think existed. I don't think the word entrepreneur existed either, uh, except maybe in the French dictionary. And so they, you know, so it was just assumed that I was thick, and you know, they they just got used to you know these dreadful marks that came back. On, um, you know, my maths paper or my English paper, and so on, uh, and um, uh, and and I think that made it that much easier when I actually said you know, that I want to leave school, um, you know, age fifteen. Uh, I think, although that my dad walked me around the garden, you know, three times instead of just once, um, you know, by the end of the walk, and um, I remember him saying, you know, look, at least you know what you want to do. At fifteen, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was twenty-two. It, I, I respect you for for that, and go give it a go. And if it doesn't work out, we'll try to help you get an ed, you know, a formal education again. You know, my mother, you know, she, you know, her whole approach in bringing up her children was one where she would she would have been arrested today. In those days, she could get away with it. So, you know, uh, you know, at age four or five, she would, you know, shove me out of the car, you know, two or three miles from grandmother's house, and tell me to make my own way there. She would. You know put me on a bicycle age seven or eight and tell me to ride you know 300 miles on the pouring rain uh, again to grandmother's house and her attitude was you know if we survived you know we'd be the stronger for it she wouldn't allow us to watch television for instance we had to get out there and do things and um, uh and you know so she'd push us out of out of the house and you know tell us to come back in the evening and you know and um you know, get out there, go and climb trees, rescue cats, you know, um, and um, I'll see you, see you tonight. So, you know, we lived in the countryside and um, you know, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a fun, a fun upbringing um, and um, very, but a very loving upbringing. I mean, it may not sound like it. She wasn't actually trying to kill us.
0: She (laughs) she did
1: love us as well.
0: (laughs) um... What, uh, what would she say to you? One, for instance, it's raining out, you're in the car, would she give you any warning? And what, what would she say to you if it, if it was raining and she wanted you to get out and, and ride a bike home in the pouring rain? Was there any uh, any kind of lead up, any <laughs> less any lesson that she would impart before that? I'm just thinking. I don't have any kids myself, but I think about parenting a lot. What what? Can you replay for us just one of those scenes so we we know how it was presented to you? I
1: think the getting out of the, the pushing us out of the car was most likely. I was most likely having a little debate with my younger sister, and 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 so it wasn't really. Yeah, you know, this is this is going to be a life lesson. It was more, um, you know, <laughs> shoving the shoving shoving the brakes on, pushing us out of the car, slamming the door, and then driving off. Um, so. Yeah, we, we, as I say, we did survive. And I mean, I, I remember distinctly when I was five on that, that, that very occasion, walking across the fields, And I'm, I was young enough to decide I wanted to get my own back on her. And, um, uh, and I saw a farmhouse and I walked very slowly towards the farmhouse. Um, so I wasn't too worried because I, I, I could see the lights of a farmhouse. Well, I was damned if I was going to do it quickly because I, I thought <laughs> she's, she's going to have she's going to have to suffer this time, and she did suffer, and 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 um, I don't think she has readily pushed me out of the car. Every day. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, no, it's fun. I mean, I've just you know, my mum's ninety ninety four now, and I've just um, I've just saw her a few minutes ago, and she she will never stop. I mean, she's got an idea a minute, and you know, we've always had to run to, to keep up with her, and uh, you know, put the two of us together. It's a dangerous, dangerous combination.
0: (laughs) So I, I think that many people have the impression of you as a fly by the seat of the pants entrepreneur who throws caution to the wind and bets the farm on many, many things. And, uh, what I'd love to talk about is, Maybe the the alternative to that or the complement to that, we don't have to do either or, which is risk mitigation. Because the, the more I look at what you've done in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, you seem like a master at mitigating risk and capping the downside. So I was, I was hoping maybe you could talk about, I believe it was... uh I think you were en route, if you could clarify for me, to BVI, and uh, there was a flight cancelled in Puerto mm-hmm. Rico, but how you actually ended up in the uh, airline business, uh, because I, I, I find it such an illustrative and helpful story, if you wouldn't mind telling people a little bit about the origins.
1: Well, uh, I was in my 20s, um, I'd been away from my girlfriend for three weeks, I was uh, coming back to see her that night. I was um, in Puerto Rico about six in the evening. I was heading to the Virgin Islands. And um, American Airlines announced that they were going to move the flight to the next morning because they didn't have enough passengers. And I was damned if I was going to wait till the next morning. My girlfriend hadn't seen me for three weeks and I hadn't seen her for three weeks, so I was determined to get there that night. So I went to the back of the airport, hoping that my Credit card wouldn't bounce. I, I rented a plane. I borrowed a blackboard. And as a joke, I wrote Virgin Airlines one way, $29 or $39 to the uh, British Virgin Islands. And I went out amongst all the people who'd been bumped and I filled up my first plane. And as we arrived in the BBI, you know, about eight or nine o'clock that night, one of the passengers you know, tapped me on the shoulder and said, um, you know, sharpen up the service a bit, Richard, and you could be in the airline business. And um, <laughs> so, um, so that, it got me thinking, you know, airlines do bump people. Uh, you know, most airlines you know, uh, don't look after people, you know, the, the staff generally don't smile. The food was dreadful. I mean, um, so the next morning I was on Necker Island and, and I rang up Boeing and I asked to talk to the sales department. Uh, and a wonderful man who I got to know, to know very well over this called R.J. Wilson answered the phone. And um, the call went roughly like this I said, um, my, You know, my name is Richard Branson and um, I'm interested in buying a secondhand 747. And R.J. Wilson said, Well, you know, would you mind telling me, you know, what you do? And I said, I'm in the record business. I've got the Rolling Stones, I've got the Sex Business, I've got Janet Jackson and you know, lots of wonderful artists. And I could sort of Feel that he was you know like um, feeling that i was slightly wasting his time and um, <laughs> but he said um, and you're, you're based in england and i said I, I, well our, our companies are based in england and so he carried on talking but and, and and subsequently i learned that he carried on talking because they were so fed up with british airways always legging legging it over them because they had no competition they thought you know, in the back of his head in mind he was thinking maybe, maybe that you know by having a competitor to british airways they'd be able to have a bit more leverage. So, so he said, um, "Look, I'll tell you what. I'll I'll come and see you. Uh, you know, we do happen to have one second-hand seven-four-seven. But with a name like Virgin, um, I really feel you should change the name. With a name like Virgin, people will think you're not going to go the whole way." Um, so, <laughs> I I I um, uh, I said, "Well, I'll I'll, I'll 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 thank you for your advice, and I'll I'll think I'll think about that." So I then you know talked to my fellow record company team and. And they went into complete panic mode. I mean, you know, what on earth are we, uh, is Richard doing, thinking of taking us into the airline business? Uh, we, we have the most successful independent record label in the world. We're, you know, we've we, we, we just signed the Rolling Stones. We've got, you know, we're, we're, everything's going from strength to strength. Um, and, um, you know, he, he's, putting every, he's going to put everything at risk by going into the airline business. And so what I said to them was, look, I promised that you know, I'll I'll, I'll only go into the airline business on one condition, and that is if I can persuade Boeing to let me hand the plane back at the end of the first year, i.e. to protect the downside. So I knew that the worst that could happen would be, you know, maybe six months of the profits of Virgin Records we would lose if it didn't work out. And um, Boeing agreed to it. And, you know, when the end of the first year came, instead of handing the plane back, people loved Virgin Atlantic. And, you know, we had a, you you know, people flocked to it and we had a spirit about it, which is very different from British Airways, we ended up buying a couple more seven, secondhand 747s from Boeing. And, uh, and then, you know, over the years since, we bought uh, some hundreds of planes from, you know, uh, for a very, the three or four different airlines we set up over the years from Boeing. So R.J. Wilson certainly deserves some, a pat on the back at Boeing, I think.
0: <laughs> so how did you convince R.J. to agree to allow you to return the plane if things didn't work out what was the what was the pitch or what was the what was the approach
1: well we liked each other which which i think is always important in in uh, any negotiation and you know he admitted that you know one of the reasons they wanted to see us in business was to you know to enable them to have a little bit of competition with british airways and you know i think you know i you know i think we we showed him that we managed to build a a very successful global record company and you know unlike other people i mean you know i argued that um being an ent- you know being in entertainment actually you know that's important in the, in the airline business that you know, that most airline owners just um uh just you know see airlines as a as a way of transporting people from a to b um but actually entertaining people uh, is is important and if people are locked in a tin can for eight or nine hours or or 12 hours, they they want to be entertained. And that, you know, that I felt we could bring our entertainment skills to that. Uh, You know, when British Airways heard that we were going to go into the business, they they dismissively said, Lord King famously said, um, too young to fly, too old to rock and roll. Um, (laughs) uh, And followed up by saying, you know, what on earth is somebody from the entertainment business going into the airline business for? But of course, that's just what British Airways didn't realize was they were not... You know, they, they were dumping a, bit, a lump of chicken on somebody's lap. They were uh, showing, you know, maybe one film and people were lucky on the screen to children, to grannies, to business people. You know, there was no choice. There was, you know, they had cabin crew who weren't given the tools to do a good job and therefore they never smiled. And and so it went on. And so. You know exactly what the airline industry what needed was uh, an airline that, that could entertain people you know so we when we launched virgin atlantic with our one plane you know we had stand-up bars we had uh you know we had cabin crew who were absolutely delighted you know, delightful and you know loved what they were doing uh we had humor i mean we I think we we showed the film airplane on the first flight you know when when we in the cockpit we had um you know, we, should, we, we told our passengers that they were going to see the, the the pilots and, you know, the screen came on and there was the backs of the heads of the pilots and, <laughs> you know, became, it became became apparent they had quite long hair. And, and then, you know, two famous cricketers turned around and handed each other a split. They were the, the front pilots. And then I took the split. I was the pilot just behind them. And, um, and there was this deathly hush in the plane. And uh just as we took off and, and 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 then i i stood up so they could see i wasn't actually in the cockpit and, and uh, we, we pre-pre-pre-recorded that the day before and um, and the whole plane the whole plane just fell about laughing and you know the journey the journey over the more champagne was drunk i think than on any any flight before or after and um, you know the pilot you know he would you know he got into the sense of humor so you know, he'd be flying along and he would, he would have the plane slightly leaning to the right, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and then he would ask all the passengers on the right hand side of the plane, Sorry, look, there's just too many people parting on the right. Would some of you move over to the left, please? And then he would <laughs> swing the plane <laughs> a bit to the left. Anyway, it was a laugh a minute the whole way. But for anybody who's thinking, my God, I would never fly on this man's airline. You know, we we got I got the chief technical officer, of British Caledonian, to actually run our airline. You know, obviously safety is paramount if you're running an airline. And 35 years later, you know, we have many airlines, and we're, you know, and it's been they've all been wonderfully run. But that doesn't preclude you entertaining people. That doesn't preclude humour. That doesn't preclude you know. We're always trying to be cutting edge. Um, you know, whether it's seat back videos, we you know, we we. we pushed the industry to invent a seat back video. And we worked five years before British Airways with seat back videos, giving people a choice. And um, you know, so we, we love trying to you know, cut through and do, do things um, differently and you know, from, from others. And, and I think that's why you know, Virgin Atlantic has survived and other airlines have done well. I mean, when, you know, when, when we set up with one plane, we were competing with TWA, with Pan Am, with Air Florida, with Laker Airways, with, with People Express, and so on. Uh, with hundreds, all of these, most of these airlines, with hundreds of planes, and we had one plane. And the, the graveyard of airlines was massive. I mean, like people who just tried to go into the airline business and failed. And over the next three or four years, pretty well all these airlines, including a lot of others, Air Europe, Dan Air, all went bankrupt. You know, and somehow this, this little. Uh, uh, David versus you know, these Goliaths survived, you know, because you know because we offered a better product, and and British Airways did not like it. I mean, they they were absolutely determined to um, drive us out of business, and and as they had driven out of business, a lot of these other airlines, and um, they launched something called the Dirty Tricks campaign. I mean, it wasn't publicly known as the Dirty Tricks campaign in the early days because nobody knew it was going on, um, but they. You know, they set up behind closed doors a group of people who illegally tapped our computer information and they would ring our passengers. They would pretend, for instance, to be from Virgin and they would say, very sorry, your flight has been delayed, but we can move you on to a British Airways flight. Or and people going into the nightclubs that we owned in London. Uh, we had a big gay nightclub called Heaven and they would rustle through the... Uh, rustle through the uh, the bins outside and try to find easels or anything that, that would um, uh, look like and maybe drugs would be taken in the club and then they would uh, you know leak the stories to the news of the world Rupert um, Murdoch's papers and uh, try to damage us that way or they would have people going through my own rubbish bins uh, which they got caught doing uh, and um, journalist rubbish bins that you know, that, that we maybe have, um, had talked to or and, and they would try to spread stories about our finances and um, and in, in the end, we decided to take them to court and it was Christmas time and um, we won the biggest libel da- damages in history against British Airways. And, and we distributed it to all our staff equally. And um, because it was Christmas time, it became known as the British Airways Christmas bonus. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and I think our, our staff, staff are hoping that British Airways will get up to their tricks again. But I mean, I mean, you know, that that helped uh, helped anyway keep them keep them on I mean, slightly more honest as, as the time went on
0: how did you identify the dirty tricks campaign how did how did it become discovered
1: it was generally speaking british airway staff that came to us um, i mean particularly one one particular individual who actually worked in the, the locked behind the locked doors tapping our computer information uh who felt very uncomfortable about it you know and and others i mean you know, for instance, they, were, they, were, they had a team of people in New York who were going up to our passengers. They got out of their limousines to board a Virgin plane, uh, again, saying, I'm sorry, but the Virgin plane has been, the has a problem, but I've I, been sent here by Virgin to take over to British Airways. And some of our passengers managed to rumble them on this one and, and, and let us know. So, you know, so it was a combination of different things. I mean, there was one person who was just caught red-handed uh, going, going through the rubbish bins, uh, yeah, so we were lucky lucky to get it exposed. I mean you know one of the sad outcomes of this was uh, they, they 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 were also dumping capacity on on the few routes that we had um, and that's that 's the normal trick of a you know big airlines against small airlines they can afford to lose money on a few routes to drive a competitor out of business, and then they 'll jack the prices up once that competitor's out of business. You know, and it was beginning to cost us some money. So, um, so I had to make a, a difficult decision. We had the, you know, the most successful independent record label in the world uh, by then, and um, you know, I knew that the only way of being completely sure of keeping the Airline going and saving all the jobs at the record company was to sell one or the other. Now that the airline, we could never sell. So, we talked to Thorny and I, and. Um, and they bought they bought the record company, and you know it was a billion dollars, and so you know it should have been a happy day, but actually it was one of the saddest days of my life because you know, selling a company is selling a full. Um, we built this company up from scratch; uh, it had been tremendous fun building Virgin Records, but you know we now had the far part to be sure that the the staff of the record company's jobs were secure, but you know under under different ownership and. Uh, and the airline was secure, and with that billion dollars, we knew that British Airways would um, have to think twice before you know they must, they most likely would realize that we were we were here to stay.
0: Thank you for that explanation and context because it gives me a number of jumping off points uh, the the first being i suppose opportunity and and risk assessment so you strike me as a really good negotiator by by necessity you'd have to be. If you had say a would be entrepreneur or a university senior, someone who's about to graduate and go into the real world and you wanted they tell you that they want to become a very good negotiator, a very good deal maker. How would you train them or what would you recommend they do or read to become a better negotiator or deal maker because you seem very very astute and subtle in structuring things in in very smart ways what would you say to someone who wants to develop that skill set?
1: I'm sure that there must be ways of being taught it, but in my opinion, nothing beats, um, beats, you know, personal experience. You know, my education was, you know, being thrown into the jungle, being thrown into the real world, age 15 or 16 and having to survive. Uh, and it was an incredible education. And, you know, I, I learned about everything in, in life, you know, um, you know, i travelled a lot. I've met, met people all over the world. I you know, I had to you know, do a lot of different negotiations. You know, I think as I've got older, I've realised the that the, one of the most important things about a negotiation is striking a deal that, that is uh, fair to both sides. And I also realised as I get older that you're always going to come across the same people time and time again in life. And so your reputation is everything. You know, in my new book, Finding My Virginity, I talk about... Our dealings with Delta and how you know they they felt that they'd legged us over on, on, on in in a clause in a contract and how they, they, they came to us to rectify it and you know this that, that's something I'll never forget in, and most likely will will be you know partners with Delta for the rest of my life because of that you know that you know that that kind of, that kind of approach um, you know so I think you know if you if you realise that your reputation is all you have and your personal reputation, the reputation of your brand, then you've got to uh, make sure that you're, you're, you're negotiating a deal that, that you're not going to be unhappy with and, and that uh, and you think of all the things that could potentially go wrong and how you can get out of it if something goes wrong. But equally important is, you know, is trying, to, trying to strike a, a fair balance with the people you're negotiating with.
0: And when uh, when we're looking internally, you mentioned how your teammates at the record company thought you were crazy when you brought up the airline. Are there any business ideas that you're glad your coworkers or team have prevented you from doing?
1: As you know, my nickname is Doctor Yes, and right. um, <laughs> you know I I have books like Screw It, Just Do It, and um, I think to be honest, if I want to do something, one one of the advantages of owning the company is. I can normally ultimately get away with it. I mean, I'll try, obviously, to carry, carry people with me. But, um, and, I, and, and I'm sure there have been one or two things which I, where I have bullied, uh, bullied the process through, where I've regretted, well, not regretted, I've never regretted anything, but where, where uh, perhaps uh, I should have listened more to others. But um, I can't think of anything that, uh, where, you know, where they persuaded me not to do it. I think most likely you know, when it comes to a decision about whether to do something or not, I like to think of myself as a benevolent dictator. <laughs> 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 I get that's the one. That's the one thing I sort of generally get my own way on. We look. We would never have gone into space travel. We'll come to that, I'm sure, later on in this talk. You know, unless I was willing to, to do to do things against the against the sensible. Of, you know, what would you know on paper be sensible advice of my uh, fellow directors.
0: We will definitely get to to space travel. What I'm curious about, because it seems if I look at many of the businesses that you've started, the positioning is often against a particular incumbent. In the case of, say, airlines, for instance, that seems to be a common element in a lot of the company or, or product launches. And I want to connect that with... So just some of your well-known adventures, and you'll see where this is going in a second. I mean, you've driven a tank down Fifth Avenue, crossed the English Channel in an amphibious car, took a 407-foot jump off the Palms Casino Resort in Las Vegas, uh, gone from Morocco to Hawaii in a hot air balloon. You, you are very, very adept at PR stunts, getting attention for the things that you do and the companies that you do? is Are there any particular best practices or a playbook that you have found to be very, or principles for that matter, helpful with the launching of a, a new company uh, or product?
1: I don't think so. I mean, I'm a great believer in trying. If, if, if your team work really hard to to launch a new business with you or for you. The least I think I can do is is make a fool of myself, make sure that uh, that new business ends up on the front pages of the newspapers rather than an anecdote on the pages of the newspapers. So if that means having to use myself to you know, put the new company on the map, I will do so. And I will try to do it in a way that makes people smile and that that doesn't horribly backfire on me. It's like occasionally, it has backfired. you know, And I suppose it's like being host to a party i mean if you're the host of the party if you if you stand in the corner of the room and you sip your sherry and stand around with your fellow directors all in suits everyone's going to have a thoroughly dull party and yeah no nobody will have a good time if you're you know the host of the party and you're first in the swing pool and and everybody else jump in too uh, yeah, they may be a bit cold for the rest of the evening, but you know they, they they're going to have a great evening. And I think yeah, the same applies when you're launching a business. You know, to, you know, make make sure that you um, put it on the map, and um, um, and just occasionally uh, it will it, it will backfire.
0: You mentioned space travel, which I do want to use as a touching off point to ask you. F- roughly 50 years after starting your first business, why why write Finding My Virginity? What was the, the catalyst for that? Why do it?
1: I actually think every, everybody should write um, a book about their lives. I've persuaded a number of people to write books about their lives, Steve, Steve Prossett, for instance, um, anyway, and a number of people um, but it, you know you don't have to have led a very public life. I think everyone's led interesting lives uh, your Your children and your grandchildren you know will be fascinated by the lives, the lives you lead and so I wrote a book, um, losing my virginity, when I was a young man, about all, all the adventures. Um, you know, it, it became a bestseller and and sold millions of copies. But you know, I was, I was quite a young man when I wrote it, and the last 20 years or so, have, uh, um, I've been very full and and very rich and you know extraordinary. So, um, so I thought I would write. Um, in a sense, a sequel to Losing My Virginity, which, which we call called Finding My Virginity. And uh, and if I live another 20 years, I've, a, a Virginity Found, I suspect, will be my last book. But, <laughs> um, but uh, we'll, 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 we'll see how we go. But no, but I think, uh, you know, I think it's important. I, I love reading, reading and learning. And I think other, others might enjoy, hopefully will enjoy it. And, you know, when I write books, I try to, I, I try not to make them like a, you know, and, and then and then we did this and then we did that. Just try to make it a really good gripping read and and an enjoyable read and and not try to sort of you know, cram in everything one's done in 20 years. But um, and, and hopefully people can get a few gems from it as well.
0: Uh, well. I'm looking forward to to reading it. Certainly, I mean, given how dog eared and how worn my paperback copy of Finding uh, My Virginity is. Uh, I I'm
1: losing you? Of losing my virginity.
0: Uh, yes, I'm sorry. That's uh, I need more coffee. I just had some pu'er tea, but it's a, it's, a, it's a little light on the octane. Uh, but I know exactly where it is. It's actually kept on a bookshelf. This is just a, a slight digression. But uh, there are a handful of autobiographies and biographies that have had a, a large impact on my life and or that I find very beautiful in many ways. And they are lined up on one shelf in my house so that I can see the spines and yours is there. Uh, Open by Andre Agassi is there and there are a handful of others. Uh, so it's very meaningful. So I'm looking forward to to reading this. And as a meta question, what are the practices, if there are any practices or habits or or anything for that matter, that helps you to keep your energy level as high as it is? Over so over so many years, I've, I've seen you, for instance, uh, y- you seem to exercise a lot. I've seen you just go for hours and hours skiing, uh, swimming around Necker, kiteboarding. But uh, could you speak to what helps you to maintain such a high level of energy and output over so long? It's, it's, it's really mind boggling to me to even observe from afar.
1: Well, looking after yourself is... Um... Is is it's obviously absolutely key to everything else, and every everything stems from, uh, you know, how healthy and well you are, both you know, physically, mentally, and and so on. I generally do it through sport. I'm, I've been very lucky that for many years I've lived on an island, and so I can get up early in the morning. I'll, I'll play a very hard game of singles tennis against somebody who's better than me. Uh, I'll then go kite surfing, uh, might maybe go surfing and then have breakfast and, and, and the day begins and, and I'll repeat that um, most likely later on in the day um, and you know maybe swim around the island as well so generally I think I I, I stay healthy and fit as a family um, you know my kids are now taking my adventurous streak on board so uh, every year they set us a, a challenge which we do together so uh, so, just to, uh, to uh, give you a taste of it, um, last year they set the challenge that we would start at the Matterhorn in Switzerland. We'd do an eight day hike across the mountains. Uh, we then get on a bicycle. We'd, drive, we'd ride 100 miles a day on the bike through the mountains, all the way from the north of Italy to the southernest tip of Italy. Then we'd swim to Sicily. Then we would do another bike ride, a marathon. And then we'd end up the top of um, Mount Etna. It took us a month. You know, I was <laughs> shattered about halfway through it. But by the end of it, I felt like a 25-year-old, I and mean, then I just never felt so fit, you know, since I was in my 20s. And um, and obviously, you know, we'll we'll try to raise money for good cause at the same time. But the very the very fact that um, you know we set ourselves these challenges, something like tomorrow, I'm I'm, I'm now in Morocco today, and um, you know tomorrow we're 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 about to climb mount tukcul which is the highest mountain in um, north africa together and and a few other little things like bike rides and hikes and things thrown in you know setting ourselves challenges doing it together as a family you know involving friends and um, and um, and and trying to raise money for, for good causes um you know that, that, that keeps you fit and healthy and your mind your mind good so that you can then do a lot more as a result
0: so speaking of, of doing good which you can certainly do through nonprofits and through for profits and other vehicles. Uh, many of my listeners wanted me to ask you to expand on your reasons for investing in Memphis meats and clean meat. Uh, and so, so looking forward to your next 20 years of adventures, could you talk about that, that decision?
1: I mean, if you take this beautiful world we live in, you, you know, one of the things that make it so beautiful is things like the rain, the rainforests and, um, the rainforests are rapidly disappearing uh, because of our demand for um, for beef, basically. You know, for every, every hamburger we eat, the amount of land that is needed to produce it uh, is considerable. And as we're more and more successful at bringing more and more people out of poverty on a global basis, more and more people are starting to eat meat. So the only way of addressing this problem is either to persuade people not to eat meat, which is I don't think it's going to be, you know, some, something that we can be successful at or coming up with alternative forms of, of meat. So, um, you know, there's, there's um, a wonderful company, I think, called Beyond Meat, which produces hamburgers that uh, taste absolutely like hamburgers, but are made, of, are made of vegetables. You know, there's the other company you just mentioned that we've invested in that is literally, you know, growing, uh, you know, taking a little tiny little bit of a live animal uh, without killing it. And then growing it in laboratories, so um, you know, so you can have, uh, you know, you, you you can have beef, or you can, uh, you know, have chicken or pig, or even even um, even fish. They believe they will be able to do, and you can make it even healthier than um, the, the the beef or the or the, or the meat that you get from from live animals. So the challenge, obviously, is producing it in quantity. They believe they will be able to do that, and if they can do it, hopefully one day we won't have to cut down the rainforests and, and therefore kill, kill animals in, in order to get our meat consumption. And, um, and I suspect, you know, when, when, when that happens, we'll actually look back at the, the wholesale slaughter of animals and the way that we did it and be slightly embarrassed about it. My ma- main reason for this is more to do with um, trying to protect what's left of our beautiful earth
0: and if, if you're looking at other areas of interest, I mean, living as I did for a long time, 17 years in Silicon Valley, the, the question of this sort of protein paradox or protein challenge is a very big one. So some people are looking at insect protein, like you mentioned. Some people are growing meat in laboratories. Others are looking at vegetable options. Another really active area of discussion is uh, cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency or blockchain and or blockchain. Uh, How do you think about if you do cryptocurrency? I mean, when you're hearing all of the news and so on, are you engaging with that at all? Uh, Are you choosing to step back? How are you thinking about cryptocurrency?
1: I I mean, I find it, I don't spend a lot of time on this. I find blockchain very exciting. I think the fact that, um, you know, Hernando de Soto has written some wonderful books about how do you pull people out of poverty and um, you know he's say taken Egypt as an example the the 90% of people who live in Egypt live in houses but but they built those houses just on public land and they have no uh, piece of paper showing that they own that land Um, so if they want to start a business they can't mortgage their home you know or you know to uh, start a business they can't um, use their asset to borrow money to send their children to school and so blockchain for instance would be the perfect place you could go and register you know the, the millions or billions of homes around the world that have no ownership on blockchain and you know it can all be in one place and I, and I think it could it could start a revolution of um, you know wealth among for, for, poor, for very poor people you know cryptocurrency it's not something that I've spent a lot of time on, but I think I marvel at uh, Bitcoin and, and and the genius of the man who invented it and you know what it's achieved so far and you know and what it could possibly achieve in the years to come and uh, and Ethereum and some of these other cryptocurrencies that are coming up. Again, you know, hats off to these geniuses who are you know who are producing them and you know, but more of my energy, to be honest, is now spent on, you know, on different kinds of issues. But I mean, it, it, I, I, I'm fascinated by everything in life. And this is one of those fascinating, fascinating areas.
0: I want to be respectful of your time. I know we don't have a whole lot left. So I'd love to just ask a few of the audience favorite rapid fire questions. Uh, and then I know you're bouncing from point to point right now around the world. So I'll let you get going. Uh, but the, the first question is, what is the book or books you've given most as a gift and why uh, outside outside of your own uh books are there any particular books that you've given or recommended to others the most
1: well climate change is something which i've, I've spent a lot of time on i would highly recommend a book called, by tim Flannery called the weather makers which uh, was one, one of the books that opened my eyes to the problems that we have in the world I'm just reading um, um, Homo Deus, which, which I find is, um, you know, and I I will carry on to read Sapiens, his, uh, his first book, um, or one of his first books. And I just love, love, you know, know, love the style of his writing. And, and, you know, I love books where you're learning, you're learning something from them. And um, uh, rather than if I, if I want to, if I want fiction I'll I'll get a good film out. Um so um if I'm if I'm reading books I like to read books which have got some substance. I love autobiographies or biographies as well.
0: Do you read most of your books as text or do you listen to audiobooks? I'm just thinking back to the challenges you had with dyslexia as as a younger person. Have you learned to cope with those and now read mostly text or is audio something that you use much?
1: Um I have largely Cope with these things now and enjoy, you know, a, a good solid <laughs> book with uh, hardback book. I'm just waiting. I'm just doing my own audio book for uh, finding my virginity. It takes takes a long time. To,
0: <laughs> takes a you know? long time. Yeah,
1: uh, yeah. And um, <laughs> uh, so, um, but but anyway, I know that more and more people do enjoy audio books, so it's, I'm sure it's worthwhile
0: in the last let's just call it 5 years or so what new belief behavior or habit has most improved your life or it what what habit has improved your life could be any new belief behavior or habit that has uh, markedly improved your life
1: if we could go back a bit further than the last 5 years i think oh yeah I we think... can no we
0: can go back we can go back as far as yeah. you like absolutely
1: one of the one of the best things my parents taught me and going back a long way uh if i ever said anything Ill about anybody um, they would um, sit me in front of the mirror and um for ten minutes and in order to sort of let me know how badly it reflected on me so uh, you know I like to think i have never gen- you know, I've generally never spoken ill about other people and I think that's been one of the one of the you know best bits of advice that i've ever given uh, sorry i've ever received or and, and obviously then given archbishop tutu who uh, chaired the elders which is an organization that we've run for for 10 years now um uh, you know he was the epitome of forgiveness with the truth and reconciliation commission in south africa um when um, nelson mandela you know took over power and um, you know i think just you know people nations you know it, it should try we should all try to run based on that philosophy um and I think we're, we're, the world would be a happier place if that if that happened.
0: You, you mentioned Nelson Mandela. This is clearly not one of my uh, stock rapid-fire questions, but uh, I've, I've heard you refer to Nelson as a mentor. Uh, are there any key lessons or takeaways or memorable sentences or anything that come to mind when you think of your interactions with Nelson Mandela?
1: Well, you know, I was lucky enough to... Um, get to know him very well over the years, even to the extent that uh, on July the 18th, we shared a birthday and, and he would ring me every single birthday to wish me a happy birthday. And, you know, I remember the, yeah, the sadness when I didn't get that call not so many years ago. You know, he had an absolute joy for life. And, um, you know, he would dance, he would smile, he would embrace everybody. But he had a, a tough side to him as well. And um, I remember one lunch I had with him, early on in our relationship where, um, you know, I'd been warned that he was always trying to, uh, extract money, uh, for, for good causes. So, you know, we had the first course, then we had the second course, then we had the pudding and we were onto the coffee and I thought, my God, I got away with it. And, um, <laughs> and, and, and then, and then he turns to me and says, ah, oh, Richard, uh, Last week I had lunch with Bill Gates, and uh, he gave me fifty million dollars for such and such a course. And uh, anyway, so he did not miss an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, I, I have, I've not, apart from maybe Archbishop Tutu, I've, I've really never met and haven't met anybody as extraordinary in my lifetime as him.
0: When you yourself feel, and uh, maybe you don't feel this, but uh, I'll, I'll assume for the moment that you do. Uh, when you felt overwhelmed or unfocused uh, or if you feel like you've temporarily lost your focus what do you do or what have you found to help Uh, you know what questions do you ask yourself is there in in those cases what have you done historically that is that has been helpful
1: you know i personally believe that the majority of people who have down moments in their lives they can they they can actually trace it back quite often to alcohol you know so the uh, perhaps the only days of my life that I feel lethargic is, you know, if instead of having you know, two glasses at nighttime, I had five or six. And if I find that's happened, you know, on more than one or two occasions, I then give up uh, completely for, you know, a month or two and, uh, and feel absolutely fantastic, of course, and realize that I'm never going to drink another t- touch of alcohol again until actually you do. And, and, um, you know fortunately i you know you know I'm so busy that i that I just can't afford to let myself down um too often but my guess is that um you, for the, for the vast majority of people you know if you can if you can be high on life and fit and healthy and uh and you know if you if you do find that um that something like alcohol is uh, is, is is just beginning to you're beginning to, drip, to get, go a bit too far. Uh, you know, being high in life is just so wonderful. Comp- you know, so.
0: <laughs> uh, for A friend of mine, an uh, entrepreneur named Matt Mullenweg, he's been on this podcast as well. He's the CEO of a company called Automatic, uh, which is behind WordPress, which powers around 37% of the Internet right now. And uh, he told me at one point that he had learned something long ago, which was uh, alcohol is borrowing happiness <laughs> from tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, certainly seems to be the case.
1: I think that those are, those are those are beautiful words, and and they're very 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 true words. Um, you know, I mean, my, my you know my, my my son's just had a year off alcohol, and and you know, look, uh, you can tell he's just so high on life; he's just enjoying enjoying it like uh, like he's never enjoyed it before. And and you know, so like, you know, if you could do it in moderation, that's great. Uh, you know, I tell the story in the book. There was one one night in. When, when we when we won the um, Grand Prix in Melbourne. And um, anyway, I let my hair down to such an extent that it, it would have made um, uh, the film Hangover look like a, a children's children's film. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and and uh, the next day I woke up and anyway, I, I, gave, I gave up for six months. And, and so, it, you know, it doesn't happen to me too often. Um, but um, but I think, you know, gen- generally it's yeah, generally, when that, that, you know, that's the one area that uh, I think a lot, of, a lot of people who do you know, run into problems in lives, it's, it's just from slightly too much.
0: Now, during those periods when you go off of alcohol, do you avoid circumstances where other people are drinking? Or is there something that you say to people if you are in those circumstances? How do you ensure that you don't have just that one drink that then triggers more drinks if you're trying to take time away from alcohol?
1: My trick is simply to have uh, cranberry and soda in a champagne glass.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: people don't know, don't. you know, I, don't, uh, you know I, I, I just will take cranberry and soda in a champagne glass. And, but I think, look, I think for a lot of people, you, especially when people first give up anything like that, drugs, alcohol, they need to walk away completely for a while. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, you know, I haven't got in, you know, I've never let myself get to that, that, that stage, but... You know, but I think that you know the best advice is, is to, you know, get, you know, get you know, just you know, just say I, I need to go to bed early tonight and and walk walk away. And otherwise, it's very difficult I think for people to stick with it. Are you are you are you somebody who drinks or not or not?
0: Uh, I don't drink a whole lot. I do enjoy wine. Uh, yeah. Fortunately, I I don't feel like I've had any uh, issues with yeah. alcohol. Although genetically, my family seems to have that predisposition. I certainly, have a fair amount of alcoholism in my extended family. So I do. I think about it quite a bit. I I can I can tell that I think I have the potential to abuse it, but I haven't up to this point.
1: I think that you and I, you and I have such fascinating lives that that um you know that that that. Is the best way of keeping, you know, keeping these sorts of things in check. You know, we just, we want to, every day is so interesting that, um, you're just not going to want to waste, waste a day by, you know, letting something like that take over your life.
0: Right. No, definitely. And, uh, just, just two more questions for me. This is one, uh, really intended just to give people a window into how you cope with some of the harder times, uh, Do you have a favorite failure of yours? And what I mean by that is, uh, how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? Are there any particular examples that come to mind?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think on the the adventure side, um, you know, the first time we crossed the Atlantic and um, a boat, we were trying to break the record for the fastest crossing of the Atlantic and getting the blue ribbon back. And, um, you know, and we sank and then the next day we built a new another boat and we, we were successful and the british people love people who are, um, are underdogs and uh, and it taught me that actually you know failing and then being successful most likely was better than just going out there and being successful the first time round. i mean the, the overcoming difficulties uh, the public almost preferred than someone who's just successful the first time around Maybe maybe not so much in America, but in, in Britain anyway. I suppose the most notable business failure that we've ever had was taking on Coca-Cola uh, with Virgin Cola. And for a while, it really looked like we were going to um, topple Coke and Pepsi. I mean, we were outselling them in the UK. Uh, the Virgin brand resonated. The, 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 you know, people loved the drink. I mean, and then, you know, we landed in Times Square with the, with the, with the Sherman tank and, you know, we... we uh, took on coke in their homeland in america and coke decided to fire back and they filled up um dc tens full of money and hit men and hit women and they they landed in the territories that we'd launched and they suddenly virgin cola started disappearing from all, all these shells and i think the lesson i learned from that was you know if i'm going to take on a goliath i've got to be we've got to be different we've got to be much better than they are and you know with a cola you're just another cola you're not you, you can't be fundamentally different you can be cheaper but you can't be fundamentally different so anything we've launched since then we've, got, we've only launched new businesses if, if we if we can make a fundamental difference
0: i love it yeah that's so so important to underscore i think this is the last rapid fire question if you if you could have a giant billboard anywhere with anything on it so and this is metaphorically speaking so getting a message out to millions or billions of people, what would it say and why? it could be a few words, could be a paragraph, could be a, a quote you live your life by yours or someone else's it, it does anything come to mind if you could get a message out to billions of people what would you what what might you put on that billboard? Trouble
1: is, I think I, I'm going to sound like a a a, um, a model um, on stage um, <laughs> about a minute, a minute. about about the need to bring peace to peace to the world, uh, and 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 <laughs> therefore I will in in instead go back to be a businessman, which is you know I think just something like nothing ventured, nothing gained. I think I think that in life, if people uh, you know if people you know try things and uh, stick their neck out, they're going to have a lot more fun than. Than if they sit at home watching other people do it, and um, so yeah, so I think that old that old quote, "Nothing mentioned, nothing been gained," is important. Having said that, you know, I've, I've um, you know, I've been involved for 10 years now in this wonderful group called the Elders, and um, and Nelson Mandela set it up, and it's now run by Kofi and Ann. and I, and I really do believe that uh, in my in our lifetime, I've seen so many unnecessary wars. I've seen the Vietnamese war, I've seen the Iraq war, the Libyan war. And these were all incredibly unjust wars which have you know, gone on to spawn awful things like ISIS and so on, which would not have happened uh, if it wasn't for actually the West uh, taking it upon themselves to interfere in other countries' business and, and killing and maiming thousands of people. And you know, we, 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 we must make sure... <laughs> That we don't have any wars in the future. And I think it, it, it takes business people. Uh, it takes society. It takes all of us to really make sure that our politicians never, never take us down that path again. I mean, one of the saddest things, I think, about the invasion of Iraq was, you know, yes, there were thousands of people on the streets. There should have been hundreds and hundreds of thousands, just like uh, the Vietnamese war, to, to stop such a foolish um, excursion. You know all all conflict should be able to be resolved by negotiation and you know even if you don't get exactly what you want out of it um that is better than better than the the, the, than all, all the bloodshed that flows from from conflict
0: i uh i think that's a perfect place to wrap up because it ties in so much i think that for people listening whether you want to leave your mark on the world as a business person as a philanthropist there's actually a very common skill set when you look at the highest levels. You need to be able to negotiate. You need to know how to deal make. uh, And you were talking about, say, ventures, nothing ventured, nothing gained, which also ties nicely into adventure. If people look at the etymology, I mean, these are very closely related concepts. uh, And I'm just so thrilled that uh, we were able to find the time to jump on the phone, Richard, and have this conversation, and uh, certainly recommend, uh, because I will be reading it along with everyone else, that people take a look at Finding My Virginity. Uh, I can't wait to pick up where I left off in, uh, <laughs> in the previous installment. Is there anything that anything else you would like to recommend to everyone listening, to the millions of people hearing this, uh, that they do or try, ask themselves, any, anything at all? Any next action or anything else that you'd like to to leave with um, as parting words?
1: Well, I have thoroughly enjoyed talking to you, and and, and um, would like would um, obviously uh, look forward look forward to seeing you again soon. I was just thinking on um, we were talking about alcohol. I mean, no, I think the I think the converse is true. I mean, and and um, to to uh, what we were talking about on alcohol, and 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 that is that. I mean, if you say take the take the war on drugs. Um, that's been going on now for 50 years. As a businessman, I would have cl- closed down the war on drugs 49 years ago. I mean, it's been an, an abject failure. And yet yeah, governments have continued to to perpetuate this war on drugs, which has resulted in, you know, hundreds of thousands of people being put in prison, you know, hundreds of thousands of casualties. It's resulted in, you know, 390 billion a year going into the underworld. And yet there is there is a simple answer, and that is if you Uh, treat drugs as a health problem, not a criminal problem, and you help people with drug problems. Countries that do that are getting on top of it. So, you know, and and we as business leaders are trying to educate governments into seeing, you know, opening their eyes and saying, look, you know, if Portugal can do this, say for heroin takers, you, America, should do the same thing. They they had a, a massive heroin epidemic in the year 2000. And, you know, by embracing those heroin addicts and helping them, uh, become normal members of society again, they managed to solve the problem. America now has the biggest um, heroin epidemic in, in, in history. And uh, and yet the way they're dealing with it is the same old, old war on drugs. And um, the way to deal with it is, you know, you, you ask these people to come forward. You, you help them with their fixes initially. Um, you, you supply them with the product. You stop them having to break and enter into people's homes. And, and you make sure that uh, when they're ready to uh, wean themselves off, that you help them wean themselves off, um, and you make them useful members of society again. You know, I'm part of something called the Global Drug Commission, and uh, we've got 15 people who used to be presidents of their country, coping hands on it, and we've done a lot of studies on on on, the, on this subject. And you know, we believe that every single drug should be regulated and taxed, and uh, and warnings should be very firmly. Put on these drugs in the same way you have warnings on cigarettes or warnings on alcohol um, but, but that is the way to overcome the, the, this problem not to carry on having having a war on drugs
0: I think this is tremendously important and I'm really glad that you brought it up just having seen my best friend growing up I grew up on uh, in rural long island my my best friend a few years ago died of an opiate overdose and uh, it's it's a hugely important problem that is not being, it's being addressed in the most counterproductive of ways, as you noted. And um, I'm actually, this is probably something we could we could talk for a long time about, but I'm involved with supporting research at places like Johns Hopkins, looking at even using certain things uh, like, say, psilocybin for the treatment of certain forms of addiction and end-of-life anxiety and so on but the important component of that or one of the components of that being looking at how to reschedule and properly supervise and regulate these compounds as opposed to immediately criminalizing them and just compounding the problem with another hundred problems uh that that end up fixing nothing so I, i i very much appreciate you bringing that up
1: yeah well thank you i think um Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's sad and strange that, um, yeah, that year after year goes by and, um, it's, it's, you just, if you talk to government, to people who are, you know, in, in positions of power, they, they actually individually, they know what the right thing is to do. They just don't have the courage to do it. And, um, and, and we just need a little bit more courage, I think, with some of our politicians.
0: Well, Richard, uh, Thank you so much for being an an agent of change and also sharing your stories in such a way that you inspire other people to do the same. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited to see what other dents you put in the world. And uh, for people listening, they can find you on social media, Richard Branson, everywhere. Certainly, they should check out Finding My Virginity and uh to people listening i will link to everything including the the new book and the show notes at tim.blog forward slash podcast and richard you have uh so many projects and so many things to keep you high on life so i will let you get back to it but thank you so much for taking the time to chat today
1: thanks so much tim and once again congratulations talk to you soon
0: all right i'll talk to you soon thanks It out, just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com, all spelled out, and just drop in your email, and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it.